Good to be with you, family. Uh, man, I just want to say hi to all of you this morning uh, on the coastlands. It's beautiful to see uh, what God is doing uh, in this place. Uh, to Carpinteria and Ventura campuses, we say hi. And let's give them some love. We love you guys. Um, Britt has asked the couple of us church planners to talk about the reality DNA, the theological, missional, and relational paradigm, the DNA of uh, our church. But he's asked us, is, uh, we have a good understanding what that is uh, for the Sunday gathered or the church gathered. He asked us to give really practically uh, how that impacts the church scattered uh, throughout the week, the Monday through Saturday. How, what difference does theology make or being theological? Why is it important and essential uh, to every uh, believer's life? Uh, so I called this a practical application of the theological paradigm. My wife said that's ridiculous. And so uh, why right thinking about God is essential to everyday life. Uh, so let's go in our Bibles to John 14. And uh, we will be looking specifically from verse 1 to 9. Uh, this morning, John 14. What I'll do is I'll go ahead and read the text for us this morning and then we'll pray and get started. John 14, verse 1, Jesus speaking says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Let's pray. Jesus, we come and we humble ourselves before this text. And we ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to give us understanding and not only that we would gain knowledge, but that, Lord, you would take this and that you would change and shape our hearts with this living truth. God, that you would uh, glorify the Son in this place. Holy Spirit, lift up the Son in this place. That your glory would fall in this place. That we wouldn't just encounter an idea or a philosophy, but the person of Jesus Christ. So God, give us the tangible weightiness of your divine attributes in this place this morning. You are the answer to every problem and every issue, every bit of storm-tossed hearts in this place this morning. So we churn, so grab a hold of us with your nail-scarred hands and let us gaze into your eyes and be made whole this morning. We lift up the churches along the coastlands and we pray that you would be gracious and give us your presence as the body of Christ. So we love you. Uh, we worship you. 
And we turn and we look toward you now in your truth, in your scripture, in Jesus' name, amen. There's a wonderfully broken couple that we had the experience to be a part of uh, from the very beginning. It was people in our body who through the natural rhythms of everyday life met these people out in uh, where they would go, where they would shop, uh, their hobbies. And uh, slowly they begin to share Christ with them. And so we got to see them uh, slowly be brought into the church to hear and understand the gospel, moving from that to making a public proclamation of Jesus and both of them being baptized, seeing God begin to work in their hearts as they were living together and, and and she's pregnant, and, and so they decided we need to do this right, and so they got married, and we were able to marry him. But there was this deep uh, uh, longing for this child, uh, that it was uh, the glue that was holding their relationship together. Uh, so uh, an utter uh, tragedy, the baby was born stillborn. And so this young New to the faith, a couple will look at their pastors and say, why? Why? In that moment, you can't give somebody the five points to this or, or, or the reason for this or some surface answer on how God has come to make you happy. But what they needed in that moment, what we need in moments like that is accurate, definitive, authoritative view of the nature and the character of God. In this storm-tossed life that we experience, sandcastle thoughts about God, as beautiful as they might be, are not what's needed. We need a solid foundation, an accurate, weighty view of God and all he is and what he declares reality to be. We need an anchor. Why theology is so important to our church and to our lives? Why is it? Theology means the study of the character and the nature of God. Here's what Wayne Grudem says. The study of theology is an effort to make definitive statements about God and his implications in an accurate, coherent, relevant way based on God's self revelations. It's to think God's thoughts after him, to understand rightly his nature. Right thinking about God speaks to the very core of who we are, to our very identity in Christ, our very uh, identity and relationships with one another in community, our very fruitfulness in mission. To put it simply, John Piper says, we exist, exist to worship God as he is. Not as we want him to be, not as we perceive him to be, but as he is. And so it is our business to discover who he is, as he is. Because God is a person and he's revealed himself. That can only happen through a deep, accurate, personal knowledge of him. And not only does it speak to the core of who we are, but almost every problem we have can be traced back to wrong thinking about God. Why is there a lack of mission in my life? Why do I have relational problems, worry, fear, anxiety, struggling with temptation? But let me present to you a problem this morning. Maybe some of you are thinking about it. There's a story of a young preacher uh, when he was younger and he had been reaching out to this young lady. Uh, She was a single mom and had led a sexually promiscuous life. 
And so his friend was playing uh, at a band for a college gathering, and so he invited her. He knew there was going to be the word taught, so he invited her to come. Ended up being a purity conference for college kids. And so the minister proceeded to take out his Bible and set it on the pulpit, and then also as an illustrative aid, he pulled up a beautiful rose, long stem green, perfectly put together. And he began to talk about it, its beauty and its texture and the smell and the aroma that it had. And then he threw it out into the crowd and he say, smell it, you know, uh, uh, pass it around, let everybody see how beautiful this rose is. And he proceeded to teach uh, on uh, uh, sex and uh, everything. And so uh, for the culmination of the sermon, he asked for the rose back up on stage to really lay the charge home. And at this point, the rose was broken and and dismantled. The petals were gone. The stem had been broken. It it was a, a shamble. And he held up to make his point and he said, Who wants something like this? I met recently with a minister much more seasoned than I am. Got to have breakfast with him and uh, an author. But interestingly enough, as he was talking about how God had been using him, he pointed to the fact that he had helped a man who had backslidden from Islam and was questioning his faith. Was this the right faith? And he was able to get him back into Islam and to be uh, uh, pivotal in that so that he could be back and worship God as the way that he knew God. And he said, isn't that amazing that God uses us in that way because he was convinced that as long as you're sincere, then God will accept you. As long as you sincerely think things about God, then you'll accept you. The interesting thing is they both had Bibles. If right thinking about God is so essential to our everyday life, how do I know that I'm rightly thinking about him? How do I keep from making a caricature of the triune God? What is a caricature? But it is a feature that has been exaggerated to where now the perfect image has been distorted. So how do I keep from doing that, and I pray for us in our everyday walk with Jesus, this text will be helpful. As Jesus seeks to help his storm-tossed disciples in our passage, uh, in, in our text, uh, he gives them the definitive anchor. In fact, in verse 7, just note really quick, is, and then we'll get into the context, but he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also from now on. You do know him and have seen him. He says, this is definitive. What I say here is definitive so that no longer can you claim ignorance. Now you have to make a choice. So notice the context. Uh, The context of John 14 is that it's hours away from Jesus going to the cross. And it's been a whirlwind week. It started as he came into Jerusalem, unique to every other time, because a whole multitude of people had held out palm branches and said, Hosanna, as he came in riding on a donkey. And so the disciples are thinking, this is it. He's tossed temple tables once again to clear out his father's house. He's been teaching. He's been instructing. But now, this Thursday... 
as they have gathered in this room for Passover, it's utterly different than any Passover they had ever previously celebrated. I wonder how long each of them looked down as they would be reclined at the table at their now clean feet in wonder and amazement and awe of the scene that had just taken place. You see, they entered that room arguing and boasting about which one of them was the greatest. As the arguing had grown steadily and steadily louder and louder, their master, their teacher, the son of God in human flesh took off his outer garments and wrapped a towel around his waist and he washed their feet. The feet of the betrayer. The feet of the one who would swear to heaven that he didn't know this Jesus. Those who would abandon him in his time of need. He lovingly took their feet and he made them clean. But whatever amazement they felt, the mood quickly began to change as Jesus announced to them that one of them from their number would betray him. In fact, John's narrative note after, G- after Judas leaves the scene in John 13, 30, it says, and it was night. Much more than it just being dark now, it's a way of saying spiritual darkness is culminating at this moment. And they all felt the weight of it. They felt the weight that Jesus tells them in John 13, 33, that he's leaving. That he tells Peter that no matter how good his intentions, he will deny his Lord Soon he'll tell the rest of the disciples that they will all fall away. They'll scatter and they'll abandon him. A very heavy night. And perhaps after Judas left and Peter sits there stunned with what Jesus just tells him. This room that had been so full of life. The smells of the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread. The laughing and and the talking and even the boasting. There's now this quiet that takes the room. Perhaps now the only sound is the slow drip from the now soaked towel that Jesus had used to wash their feet. But an amazing grace It is Jesus who is heading for the agony of the cross. Scripture tells us that he is deeply troubled in heart. And on this night of nights, it's him who gives, it's him who comforts, and it's him who instructs. So all the eyes, the ears, all the attention goes so much now as Jesus begins to speak in John 14. Not so much to the lamb that was on the table, but to the lamb that was at the table. And so I hope we see in this text that Jesus, number one, is the supreme revelation of God. Number two, especially displayed in the gospel. And number three, which causes us to see his supreme worth. Notice with me in verse one, he tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. That word is much more than, oh man, you know, I, I don't feel right. It means... Do not be overcome with turmoil. Do not be intimidated by the situation. And then right from the get-go, he's going to tell them the problem and the remedy. He says in verse 1, believe in God. It's a command. And also as a command, believe also in me. And he tells them from the very get-go that a belief in God is interconnected with belief in him. That a belief in him is interconnected with a belief in the Father. And there's a problem They're doubting in this instance the the weight on their hearts that Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. 
Why? Why are they doubting? Why are their hearts in turmoil? Why are they doubting? Why does Jesus have to say, believe in me, trust me? Bring to bear everything that I've done on your circumstance and situation right now. Why? It's because their expectations are not being met. Uh, We find this out uh, in verse 8. And so we're going to dive into this and then we'll track back uh, through the beginning of the text. In verse 8, Philip uh, tells Jesus his expectation. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Just do some grand display. We thought that this was the week. You see, they looked to a political Messiah, a Messiah who would overthrow Rome and then establish Israel as with, to the former glory it once had, a light to the nations all around it. That's what the Messiah was going to do. And he was going to do it in, in might and victory. And now Jesus is talking about leaving and departure and denying and abandoning and, and a betrayer. And so Philip goes, wait a minute, what are you doing? We're, we're losing this. The people were all cheering. Wait for you. Just put on some grand display the glory of God. Do it in some grand way. Just show us the Father will be enough. The Pharisees will be convinced. The Sadducees will be convinced. The religious leaders will be convinced. The elders, every person will just do such a grand display that it's undeniable. D.A. Carson says in his commentary uh, on the book of John that these disciples in this sense where their hearts are at are on the brink of catastrophic failure. And they are much as we've seen earlier in the gospels like John the baptizer. John the baptizer, the one who said I'm not worthy to loosen his sandal. The one who told the crowds, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The one who said... I must decrease and he must increase. But he's been put in prison and he hears messages about Jesus spending time with sinners and at parties and going to weddings and the miracles, the great miracles he's doing is turning water into wine. What are you doing? I'm in prison. And so he sends messengers to Jesus. And here's what he says in Matthew 11. Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another And Jesus then shows the credentials of being the Messiah. Uh, He uh, gives sight to the blind. He opens deaf ears. Lepers are cleansed. The dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And then he adds, I think it's in verse 6 of Matthew 11. And blessed are those who are not offended because of me. Blessed are those who are not upset when I don't meet your expectations. Blessed are those who are not upset and thrown into turmoil when I am not the God they think that I should be. So this is what's happening in the disciples' heart in this room. Jesus, you're not meeting the expectations. And so we're beginning to wonder, are you truly the supreme revelation from God? In verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father how can you say, show us the, uh, the Father? Philip, I called you at the beginning of my ministry. The one who brought others to me. The one whom I gave a front row seat in the feeding of the 5,000. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? 
And this know here is a very important word because it means not knowing a fact, but it means to know personally and intimately. And what he's correcting is the tendency of the heart, their hearts and our hearts, to use God to get from God instead of getting God himself as the end. That expectations and that the great barrier to intimacy is is when we come to God, not to have God as he's revealed himself to be, but as we try to fit God into our reality, we want to keep control. You think about this worry that he's talking about, this trouble and heart. You see, at the bottom of worry, and you get under there and uncover it, is the belief that I am wiser than God and that he should do things. He should give me the life that I want to have to give me the happiness that I know I can have. What's fascinating about this is, number one, it's entirely impossible, church, to be around Jesus and the things of Jesus and not to know Jesus personally. It's because it's not just knowing a fact or a philosophy. He didn't just send us more things to do or, or, or another list, but he gave us a person to know. Matthew 7, you guys know the verse, but they come to the Lord on that day and they say, Lord, Lord, we've done these amazing things in your name. We've cast out demons in your name. We are your ministers. We work hard for you. And Jesus will say, depart from me for I never knew you. And where these weeds that Jesus is dealing with in the disciples' lives are at the budding stage, we get a picture of a stage that is left to go and this control, this using God is explicitly revealed in the life of Judas. Judas who has just left. Judas who is right at this moment as Jesus is teaching, rallying a mob to come and to arrest Jesus. It's fascinating because as Jesus meets him in the garden of, uh, or Judas meets Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, what does he do? He gives him a kiss And Jesus, stunned by it, he says, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Moses Aberbach, a Jewish scholar, helps us to understand the dynamic of what's happening here. He said, never, ever would a disciple initiate a kiss to a rabbi, a master, a teacher, because it was a sign of authority. And so when Judas kisses Jesus, what he is saying is he says, I am in charge now. I am the authority. I'm in control. I've been with you, but things haven't worked out. Things are falling apart. And so for a thousand dollars, I'm selling you to the religious leaders. Jesus says in verse nine, do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to know what the father is like? Do you want to know how to understand the Old Testament? Do you want to know the tone of my voice, then look at me. Does God want the broken rose? Absolutely. John 8, the woman caught in the act of adultery, everybody's left and Jesus stands up from the dust and he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, I have none. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He can say that to her because he's going to be condemned for her. 
Does God just give everybody a pass and as long as we're sincere? No, he's going to declare, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The gentleness and the meekness of Jesus wrapped with what we see, the glorified King of kings and the Lord of lords, the judge of the living and the dead. He will not allow himself to be fashioned into an image we would make of him. Not only is this a claim to deity, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, but to supreme revelation about God. God does not just give us a word about himself. He gave us himself in the word that became flesh. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. Colossians 1.15, listen to this, this is insane. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the image of the invisible God. Hebrews brings it out even greater. Uh, Hebrews 1, 2 to 3, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is, by his own admission, the supreme revelation of God. And that the supreme revelation of God is especially revealed in the gospel. Verse 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The first thing to note is that Jesus says there's room for anyone who would come by him. That there never runs out, there's room enough, that it's not going to be cramped, but that there's room He also is talking about that this dwelling isn't in this weird thing where we go and visit God, but is the very dwelling place is God himself. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And so, first of all, this verse, to understand it rightly, to understand this part of the gospel, it speaks to consummation. The word there, I take you to myself, can be translated gloriously, I might add, face to face. Where else do we see that expression? 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So he says right now, it's like we have a a veil over our eyes. I like to think about it as a wedding veil. Because it says we're going to be married to him, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb. And then when we stand with him face to face, he lifts the veil and we see him in unmitigated splendor and glory. And he puts his kiss upon us. This is such a powerful aspect to the gospel that in 1 John 3, 3 says, if we even have this hope of this meeting, we purify ourselves even as he is pure. 
The second thing, notice though, so this speaks of consummation, that Jesus is going to right everything that's wrong. That he's going to wipe every tear from the eye. That this meeting, this eternal dwelling with God. But notice the prepare a place. We mustn't think that the eternal perfect God from eternity past has some flaw in himself that Jesus needs to go and work on. So what does he mean by prepare? In fact, we see that in Matthew 25 verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, speaking about consummation, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So this dwelling place from eternity past has been prepared. So what is Jesus saying? I have to go prepare. I've got to go prepare. Not that there's flaw in the eternal dwelling, but that there is a flaw in the access to there. He's going to prepare a place by going to the cross for us so that we can have access to eternal, everlasting dwelling in him. You see, there's a barrier, it's called sin, by our own choosing. We said, I want control. I know better how to rule my life. I know better how to get happiness. I don't trust that you have your best, uh, my best intentions in mind. And so we sin and there was a barrier and it's all through the story of God, this barrier. We can't get too close, we can't get too close. There is a veil. And so Jesus went, to remove that barrier, uh, barrier by becoming sin, by being judged for our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But some of you may be going, that's great eternity, I'm, I'm glad, but right now I'm struggling, tonight I'm struggling. Well, Jesus isn't done, and this is the glory of the gospel. He says, rooms, right? And that word there for rooms is used only one other place in the entire New Testament, and it's in verse uh, 23 of chapter 14. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. So not only is this gospel some future consummation that we eagerly await, that we hope for as we see evil and sin, but he says as the veil is torn from the top down, I make you now presently my dwelling place. I make you my room. The glory that Jesus doesn't love some future version of us, but he loves you today. He loves you now. He has removed every hindrance to intimate fellowship with himself. Jesus is the supreme revelation, especially displayed in the gospel, which then causes us to see his supreme worth. Verse 4 to 7, or 4 to 6. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas looks and he goes, what are you talking about the way? You haven't even told us the destination. How can we even know the way if we don't know the destination? Where's the destination in Jesus and proclaiming in verse 6? He says, Thomas, I am the destination. That he's the way. That no matter where you're at in life, no matter what day of the week it is, no matter how you feel, 
He is always the destination, Paul says, that I may know him. He says elsewhere that I press on to lay hold of him who's laid hold of me. That whatever my hand finds to do, I do it with all my might, not as to men, but unto him. That every aspect of life must come under this new reality and we must posture ourselves under it to be affected forever by it. He says, I'm the truth. Not a truth or more truth, but the truth. And so no matter what we feel our circumstances are, what our circumstances tell us, or whatever the culture is trying to make us as it tries to fashion us in its image, He says, this truth isn't an abstract principle, but a living truth that is active. It takes hold of us. It influences us powerfully. It sanctifies us. It guides us. And it sets us free. John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 17, 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And so as truth, what God declares is, is. That is reality. It's interesting because in Ephesians 5.18, you'll come to it soon. But Paul says, and do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, or be being filled. And alcohol is a depressant. And why typically people? Because reality is too difficult. And so we want to numb ourselves to that. And we can use a great many things. It doesn't just have to be alcohol. To to numb ourselves to reality, to numb ourselves to what's happening around us. And what Paul says here beautifully is he says, it's not that you need less of reality, but you need more of reality. Be being filled with the Spirit. Because what God declares is, is. That there is therefore now no condemnation, no matter what you feel. And as you stand under that truth, it begins to mold and it begins to shape you. What you need is you need more right thinking about God until it shapes you. And in faith, you believe that that is. And the more that you believe that that is, the more it changes your life. Here's how it works for me, briefly. Recently, I felt rejected by somebody I love. We all experienced that. But this wasn't the normal, um, you know, oh, that sucks, you know, and I'll get over it. But my reaction to it. I felt, I think Michael Scott says it best, I felt like I had been hit in the gut with a frozen sledgehammer and then my heart had been taken and boiled uh, in a vat of tears. A little dramatic. (laughs) Tend to be that. But here I felt like this this being pushed out. I, I wasn't in, I wasn't invited in. So I went and this is how I did it. And I said, God, first of all, praise the Lord that you revealed this to me. That you're so jealous for my joy that you will not allow a secret love affair with something else. God, I repent because I have needed something for my satisfaction and joy in addition to you. And that is evil and that is wicked. God, You who had all position. The King of kings, the Lord of lords from eternity past. Through my own choice, I was forced out of what I was made for. Relationship with you. The rhythm of that relationship. And instead of leaving me to justice and destruction, you came. And you were rejected. You were pushed out. 
Look at the Gospels. Everywhere Jesus says, he calls God Father, 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 until you get to the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost his father so I could gain one. So God, thank you. Thank you for bringing me in because if I was in every circle that I wanted to be in, that would never satisfy because I have been made to be brought into your circle and that can satisfy. And that only came not from my duty, not from my hard work, but fully and perfectly by your grace. I didn't want to go home and poison my family with my anger and bitterness. And so it took me an hour to sit there on the couch in the office and to work that into my heart until I went, yes, that's true. That's what's real. And it formed and it shaped and it changed. And not only that, I went to brothers and I said, here's a struggle that I've had. Please pray for me. Here's what I feel. Here's my tendency to this, to need to be approved by men. And they prayed for me. And so it's, that's what it means that we think right thoughts about God and it changes every part of our lives. That he's the life. I came that they might have life and that more abundantly. That he has to be our everything. The reason we get up in the morning that we'll never know him if we come in some detached intimacy So how do we do this? There's no shortcut to intimacy. There is absolutely no shortcut. We want a shortcut. We want a tweet that will just send us over the edge. In fact, we want a mail order bride. We put down our cold hard cash and we get immediacy that shows up on our, our intimacy that shows up on our doorstep. It doesn't happen. He's a person. You gotta know him. I give you Mary. Where do we see Mary? We see her sitting at Jesus' feet as a humble learner, learning the truth about who he is in adoration and worship. Do you know the psalmist is constantly saying, I delight in your law, I love your law, I love your law. What is he saying? Is he saying, I love the Levitical ceremonial laws, they get me going in the morning. They called the word of God the law because it had authority in their lives. It was the authority. It was reality. And we see Mary sitting at her master's feet, gazing, doing the thing that won't be taken from her. The next place we see her is at the tomb of Lazarus. And what happens? She comes to the Lord and she casts her cares on him. You've got relationship. Because he cares for her and she says, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And what does he do? He weeps with her. She experiences the life-transforming presence of the living God. To know the God who weeps when we're faced with something like death. And then where do we see her? Just days before this night, Martha and Lazarus throw a party, a dinner party. It was customary in that day was to give the guest a drop of olive oil uh, scented with spices because in that day, hygiene was a little difficult and so people smelt. And so the host, as a good host, would do that. So there Jesus is and, and Mary disappears. And she comes out with the family heirloom 
who we learn later that is 300 days wages. And what that was for is it was for emergencies like famine or some great disasters. They could liquidate it and then they could be taken care of. They could live on it. It was their security. And I think this is what the room did. Yes, Jesus deserves the best. Give him a drop of the best. And I challenge you, I implore you, church, by the mercy of God, that when we see his worth, we realize he doesn't deserve a drop of the best. But she pours the whole thing on his head. And the disciples' reaction, it says they're indignant. Literally, in Greek, they snarl like an, a wild beast. And they begin to rebuke her sharply. She lets down her hair, which was grounds for divorce in that day. If you were married, it was her beauty. And she began to wipe the oil off of his feet. She said, Christ, I've sat in your presence and I've learned from you and you've become my authority. Christ, I've sat in your presence and felt the attributes, the tangible weightiness of your divine attributes in my life. And so Christ, you have my security. You have my reputation. You have my beauty. You have everything. You've got to pursue him. You've got to make him your name. So we'll do that this morning. We'll go to worship. And we'll look at the gospel and narrative form as we take communion. Hold it in your hand today and say, I would be crushed. I would be laid to waste if it wasn't for him. Hold the cup or, or when you dip it, I would be poured out rightly if he wasn't poured out in my place. There's prayer up here. Some of us need to do deep, desperate business with God because we've tried to maintain control. But please hear me and please seek Jesus because he is the supreme revelation of God, especially displayed in the gospel, which causes us to see his supreme worth. Jesus, we love you, we praise you. Uh, God, I pray that you would meet us in this place. And God, here's what we ask this morning. We ask that this would go beyond today and it would go into tomorrow, that it would affect our lives, that it would affect how we deal with one another, that it would affect our relationships, that it would affect our joy, it would combat our depression, that it would affect our mission, and it would affect our community, that God, we would seek you out, that we would study, that we would behold your face, and that we'd cast off every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, that we would not hold back from you, that we would sit there until we see you your worth and have everything we need. What can man do? What can circumstances do if we have you? So be our end this morning for your glory and your people's joy. In Jesus' name, amen.